is a special study this morning of Torah because we're studying receiving Torah. So um, kind of it's a wonderful thing when we're studying as our Parsha, as our words of Torah, our um, story, our narrative about that moment uh, of revelation, of the entry into this relationship with this text. So this relationship is, you know, crazy old, um, you know, at least 2,400 years old, closer probably to 3,000 in terms of the, the origins of these stories and um, the lives that, that were the context for these stories to have the shape that they do. Um, so 3,000 years we've been telling this story. That is just, when you really take a minute to think about that, it's like, what? Wow. Um, especially for us in America, where things are mostly new, and even stuff that's old is new. Um, you know, when we really try to get our heads around, I'm, I know whenever, whenever I'm in Israel, it's like that feeling of, what? Like, um, there's a word in Hebrew, Disneyization, which means the Disneyfication of something. Um, Disneyazatia. And of course, it's a word that could only come, you know, from something Americans do. Um, but I always have to kind of, it takes me a few days, always in Israel, to realize that this is not Epcot. Like, this is, this is not Disneyazatia. This is not a set, right, that's been created. Like, I'm not at Universal Studios. Like, this is, this is for real. That rock is for real. Thousands and thousands and thousands of years old. Um, so that, that's just, for me, it's always like, right, when we're at this point of revelation in our history, it's like, wow, that's a long time ago our people had an experience that we are still bound by, like, in really important, mystical, wonderful, magical ways. So we're going to look at um, the text this morning, and then I want to study with you a little bit um, from Michael Lerner's book. I gave you a sheet a while ago from that, a few weeks ago, um, from his book, Jewish Renewal. Um, he has one of the best explications of a progressive relationship to the idea of revelation that I have ever read. Um, he, he has one of the best ways of wedding both our progressive liberal values, and that means a liberal interpretation of all of this, um, of, in our tradition, wedding that to an absolute sense of being obligated, right? Of feeling called into a relationship with the divine that is represented for us by these texts. Um, and so the power of both of those is what compels me in my life. Um, and so I want to share him and his teaching with you. There's lots that we could do today, obviously. You can imagine the rabbis spend a serious amount of time in the Midrash dealing with Sinai, dealing with Revelation, dealing with what that means, dealing with what happened for the people, what happened for each person, what about this word, what about the letter of that word. It goes on and on and on in a glorious cascade of imaginative um, and deep thinking. There's no way in 45, in 45 minutes to an hour we can get close. Um, so I'm actually toying with the idea of, but I want your opinion, of offering a class on like the, the Midrash around Revelation, apparently. Um, all the traditions around that first Aleph of the first commandment, Anochi. There are whole books entitled Anochi, right? Go on the internet, type in Anochi. There's like three or four just in the last several years published called Anochi. There, it's that big 
you know, a thing that you say anochi in certain circles and everybody knows what you're talking about. And all it means is I. All it means. It means I, right, spoken by God in the first commandment. I am yod heh vav heh your God. Anochi Adonai. Why anochi? Why not ani? Why not, right? So, and then there's all of these amazing midrashim about why the Ten Commandments begins with an aleph, which is a silent letter. So actually, the Ten Commandments starts in silence. It's fantastic what's out there. So, um, so I think that maybe the next class I offer is a text class on the, the midrashim around, around revolution. All right, so having said that, Bert Kleinman drew my attention to chapter 19, verse 14, which I am assuming is what's in Kohan Neshamah. So hebcal.org begins a little earlier, but I think it's better to begin further on or we'll never get to Revelation. Exodus 19. So actually, let's ba- I do want to back up to... Actually, go, go to 19.7. That's 4.13. Moses came... Mm-hmm. Ken, Ken, Ruvain. So you want to read? Does everybody got it? Everybody has it? 19-7? All right, so Moshe has... Moshe's just had an encounter with his father-in-law, Yitro, where Yitro chastises Moses for hearing all the cases of the people and says, this is not good for you. But lots of the commentary focuses on the next line. He says, this is not good for you, and... It's not good for the people. So there's lots about why is Yitro saying to Moshe, you can't hear all the cases yourself. Obviously, it's not good for Moshe. He's going to burn out, obviously. And his relationship can't be fantastic at home if he's hearing every case of the people. But it's not good for the people either. So, right, that, that's not a good model of leadership for the people. Um, so he's just had that conversation. He listens to his father-in-law. He does what he says. And that is how the judicial system um, evolves in in. Israel and the ancient Israel, Israelite narrative is that uh, the judicial system is set up so that, that there are courts for smaller cases and Moshe is the Supreme Court. Then, immediately after that, he says goodbye to his father-in-law who goes home to Midian. And then chapter 19 begins with the third month after the Israelites had left Egypt and God calls to Moshe saying... Um, we're, we're going to have something special happen now. And that in this process, God is going to give them a covenant to keep. And you will be my treasured possession among all the peoples, God says. Um, you shall be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Here's what you're going to say to Israel. So the language is covenant. The language in Hebrew is what? What's covenant in Hebrew? Brit. So this idea of brit was the governing idea in the ancient Near East at this time. It makes perfect sense that our narrative is placed in the context of a breed. You either had breed between equals, and then it describes what each party has to do to live into that breed, or you have the vassal suzerain uh, treaty or breed, which is that I have all the power and I tell you what to do and how to live into the covenant, and if you break it, there are consequences. What, what did you call that? Vassal suzerain? Yes, so the conquering suzerain, the conquering king, oh. would cut a covenant with the conquered people, okay. the vassal king, okay. usually on behalf of the people, signs a, a covenant, and the copy of that covenant is put uh, in the shrine, 
and is kept so that kind of it it has all the powers around it that it that sets into being about if somebody breaks it and um, and so that that is normative for our our time and our places covenant is a strange translation because the English word covenant comes, I believe, from the French, covenant, venant means coming. Covenant is like a co-coming, a coming together, which you don't have to sense at all. Up, down, right. right. So that is much closer to when to equal parties. Yeah. yeah. Although, in some ways, it's a midrash on the French, <laughs> um, a midrash, um, is that... Uh, is that for God, it is, in our tradition, for God, we understand that to mean God pulling the people closer, right? That the covenant pulls them into a significant and special relationship with God that God doesn't have with the rest of the world. And vice versa. And vice versa. Um, and so that's why it says, I mean, that's why it says, but it says here in chapter 19, right, that indeed all the earth is mine. Right? So God is not saying, I'm only going to be God for you, the way the Egyptians did, right? Ra's the God for the Egyptians, Baal's the God for somebody else. Yudhe is not saying, I'm the God for you and let everybody else do what they want to do. It's, I'm the God of all peoples, of everybody, of the entire earth. The whole earth belongs to me and all its peoples. But I'm going to pull you into a special covenantal relationship. It's a very human concept to think God is above. I mean, where is that? When the world's spinning, I mean, so that's a human concept, obviously, God is, is everywhere. Well, and if you've ever been in the Sinai, and you look up, it is very clear why this story is set on a mountain. It is, it is quite something. Because the mountains are huge mountains. I'm talking huge mountains. And that unbelievable blue sky against that red rock, you know, that's huge. And you are nothing when you are in that. You, you are nothing. So it is absolutely clear that, of course, if, if you're going to put God somewhere in that setting, it's going to be at the top the of that. Abs- absolutely. 100%. You can get a sense of that driving out into the desert here. Some of the desert mountains, even near Palm Springs and then past there. And you look up at the mountains, it's similar. It is quite something, quite something. And uh, the mountains of Israel don't even, only by a lot does it even come close to the Sinai. I, I once said, if, if I am ever terminal, take me to a beach in the Sinai and like bring me umbrella drinks. And so, like, that's where I want to go. That's where I want to be. All right, so we are um, looking at verse 7. Reuben is going to read for us. Moses came. Page 413, Moses came and summoned the elders of the people and put before them all that Adonai had commanded him. All the people answered as one, saying, all that Adonai has spoken we will do. And Moses brought back the people's words to Adonai, and Adonai said to Moses, I will come to you in a thick cloud in order that the people may hear when I speak with you and so trust you ever after. Then Moses reported the people's words to Adonai and Adonai said to Moses, go to the people and warn them to stay pure today and tomorrow. Let them wash their clothes. Let them be ready for the third day for 
or on the third day, Adonai will come down in the sight of all the people on Mount Sinai. You shall set bounds for the people round about, saying, Beware of going up the mountain or touching the border of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death without being touched <coughs> by being either stoned or shot beast or person, a, tra a, trans a trespasser. Are you now reading the commentary? No. No? no? Where am I then? Oh, sorry, sorry. Go on, Reuben. Thank you. Sorry. It's interesting. <laughs> um, when the ram's horn sounds a long blast, they may go up on the mountain. All right. So one of the most famous lines in all of rabbinic literature happens here. Moshe summons the elders, right? This kenim, the, the people charged with leadership of the people are the elders, right? In this setting, how Levi should only be in our time, that it was understood that the elders are the ones with the most prestige. They are the ones with the most um, experience, the most wisdom. So they were the most respected of the people. So it is the elders who Moshe addresses. And... Uh, tells them what God has said, right? You're going to come and you're going to have this new arrangement with me. And, um, and so they bring the word of the people back to Moshe. And the people famously here in verse 8 say, Kol asher diber Adonai, everything that God has said, na'aseh, we will do. Right? So this is a famous line. Uh, its partner line is the more famous one. Na'asebenishma. We will do it and we will hear it. Meaning they agreed before they heard what the terms were. This is the merit of Israel forever in the imagination of the rabbis. That merits them a lot of forbearance later. Right? Na'asebenishma. We will do it. We agree. Now tell us the terms. So the Midrash is that God went to every other people of the world and said, I want to make you my treasured possession, my amsegula, my treasured people. And they said, nishma, let us hear it. Yeah. Right? And that only Israel, the last of the last, God comes to Israel last, and Israel says, na'aseh v'nishma, we will do it, then let us hear it. How many people would like to do I don't know. I don't know. A lot. Rabbi, does it say we will hear somewhere else? And is that another? Because here it's... Yeah, another place. It says na'aseh v'nishma. Um, but it's kind of this idea of na'aseh. We, we will do it. Everything God has said, we will do it. And another place is na'aseh v'nishma. Right, we will do it without asking what it is. Could that also mean we'll do it and then the doing will talk to us? And we'll learn from doing it? A beautiful midrash. Beautiful. Write it down. Write it down. you got to write it down. we got to collect these. Ooh, we should do that. We should collect those and have a K.I. book of Midrash. In your spare time. Write it down. All right, that is a great idea. We're going we're gonna to work on that. Why did you say burn again? Right, so that na'asev nishma means if we do it, nishma, we will, we will hear something from that. We will learn something from that. If we do it first, the doing will teach us. I always like in this section to God saying, just give me, give me a blank check. It's like, well, I'll fill it in. No, you're not. Just give it to me, and I will fill it in. And so we have to kind of hear it here. And, right. And we did it. Yeah. We did it. Yeah. Well, I, 
other people were offered the covenant? Because the rabbis want to make us special. And so it's more There's special. It's yeah, 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 it's Midrash. Midrash is all the rabbi's imagination. All of it. All right. Inspired, divinely inspired imagination, perhaps. I don't want to, like, denigrate anything. All right, so Moshe, so, so they say everything God has said we will do, right? And so God says to Moshe, I will come to you in a thick cloud, right? So God's going to have a visually manifested, concentrated part of God's essence visible to the people. And then in order that, that the people may hear when I speak with you and so trust ever after. So this is going to be the thing that proves once and for all Moshe's unquestioned leadership and official like prophet of God status. As if, right? We're dealing with the Jewish people. But it's supposed to be that. Um, and Moshe reported the people's words to God. See, it gets very confusing, right? The chronology of this gets very messy and very confusing. Um, and so the rabbis love to say, Ein There's no early and late in Torah. It's not supposed to be a sequence. You can't expect to read it linearly. It's all of a piece. Um, but that's kind of a way to deal with the fact that it's written so that it's all kind of like this. Why so, is this chronologically off, though? It seems perfectly so because Moshe so Moshe brought back the people's words to God and God says to Moshe I'll come to you in a thick cloud then Moses reported the people's words to God he just did that when did he go back to the people and say something about a thick cloud to to take something back to God right that it's it's very choppy and very confusing and my teacher of blessed memory Tikva Freimerkensky said um that this was the way in the ancient world that you, through literary means, communicated that this is an ineffable experience, right? So how do you, in a literary format, communicate that you can't really talk about this? You make it kind of mangled. Does that make sense? You, you, can't, you can't tell this story the way you tell other stories. I picked up the car, then I got it washed, then I went to the grocery store, got the bags out of the trunk, walked through the door, went to the produce section. That's normal life. Start to tell somebody about a dream you had last night, right? And it, it's like, well, I don't know, there was kind of this thing, and then it turned into a thing that wasn't really that, but I knew it was, but somehow. So it was my sister, but it wasn't. So like, it, it's, it's, it's tangled. Um, and th that, is, that is part of why the story is told this way, is to, is to communicate how big an event this is, that, that words and linear, you know, talking about it doesn't really do it justice, doesn't capture it. I bought that. I thought that was a good explanation. All right. So, um, so Moshe says, go to the people and warn them to stay pure today and tomorrow. So they need to bathe, presumably. They're going to do mikvah. Um, let them wash their clothes, right? So they need, they need to ritually purify themselves and their garments and let them be ready for the third day. Why three days? <laughs> it's like, why not? No, three's a, three's a number of completion. There's the, the unit, the singular, then there's the duality of the pair. The first number past that is three. So the first number past the singularity of one or the duality of two is three. Hmm. That just like, huh? That 
That's just the random. Well, it's the triality of three. I mean, you could say the first number after the trio is four. So that's why. But that's already two pairs. Okay. You've got a one. You've got two, right, yeah. as a pair, and that's what you've got for the rest of the, the first thing past that. I mean, it's one right. theory, but that, that across the board, three is a powerful number in the, in it's every the culture. Trinity. It's why do you think there's a Holy Trinity? Three is a very powerful number past the unit and the binary. And it's also the number of commitment. The number of commitment. Tell me about that. Uh, you, it, you, you say something three times and you really mean it. That's a deal. Why? Why three? I assume for the same reason, you know, back to, the, but, but again, this, this, is a, this is a commitment situation. Absolutely. So three days, because this is going to be a very serious commitment. So they needed a window of enough time for it to be serious time, time for them to consider, time for them to have time to take it back. When God comes down on that mountain, God wants to know that they've had three days to think about this. When, Mo, when Avraham takes Yitzchak up the mountain, how long did that take? Three days. Huh, three days. When you're trying to get your kid into the car, I'm going to count two. <laughs> One, two, elbow. <laughs> right, my kid used to arch, not wanting to go to the car seat. One, two, and then the elbow's coming, so... I was imagining that that would be how I might respond if I were to get really frustrated. Does this have to do with baseball? This does not. Base, uh, see, now you're going to see it everywhere. Now you're going to see three everywhere, right? So exactly. So you get three tries, and then you're out. Triumvirate. All of it is about the power of the number three. So here we go. They have three days, and then God's going to come down. We're on the triennial cycle. Well, <laughs> it's going to be everywhere, I'm telling you. All right, so you shall set bounds around the mountain because God is going to come down on the mountain. What's that going to do to the mountain? Make it holy. It's going to make it holy. It's going to supercharge the mountain. Nuclear. It Nuclear. And it makes the mountain, therefore, taboo. Mm -hmm. You can't touch it. It belongs to God. You can't touch it. So... Once God comes down on the mountain, the whole thing, right, is, is, on, is now powerized. Electrified. Thank you, electrified. And so the people are not allowed to touch it. And, and in the ancient world, you touch something that's taboo, you're done. Because it spreads. You'll spread the danger. It's treason. So we, we still punish treason with capital punishment. Not saying it's right. I'm saying we still in the modern world have an understanding of treasonous behavior is so dangerous. It has, you have to have the ultimate consequence or because you know, it's that serious. So beware of going up the mountain or touching the border of it. And whoever touches it, that's treason. They have to be eliminated. No hand shall touch it. Right? Mm -hmm. That person, because now that's spreading the contact and this idea we still have a vestige of this idea with the burial when we when we shovel earth in the grave do we hand the shovel off we do not we put the shovel back in the dirt you don't want to you don't want to pass it you don't want to hand that off so it's that we still have this a remnant of this idea of it, it contam not contaminates but it, 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 it can collect it communicates it 
from one person to another. And you don't want, there's things you don't want to communicate. Like think of the flu. Like it, you, it's that feeling of, okay, okay, you don't, you don't want to pass it. So you have to be careful. Um, so, and I only say the flu because like it's every, it's so in my consciousness about, you know, so many people are sick, so many kids are sick that it's just like everybody's just kind of like aware all of a sudden of our boundaries and what we pass to each other and how, right? So, um, so whether it doesn't matter if it's a person or um, uh, animal, it, it, it's now t- touched something taboo. It's got to be eliminated. This says shock. Yeah. Is the translation here? Shock with what? Yeah. I'm assuming yeah. bow and arrow. Yeah. Not a gun. Uh, Presumably not. <laughs> now, not now, <laughs> there. What, Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court? I don't. I can't. I don't know what happened. Right? Possible. All right, when the ram's horn sounds a long blast, they may go up the mountain. Do you see the word for ram's horn here? Anybody? Bimshoch ha... Yovel. What's Yovel? What do we usually think of when we think of Yovel? Jubilee. Yovel is a Hebrew word for... Jubilee. Yovel, Jubilee. Uh, so uh, originally, Yovel probably meant a ram or, you know, a sheep, um, but not a sheep. So sheep don't, <laughs> sheep don't have horns. <laughs> Sorry, I just cracked myself up. All right, so whatever, what, what has a horn? A, a ram. What else has a, a horn? A unicorn. Okay, or a unicorn. It either meant a unicorn or a, or a thank you or a ram. And, and then it came to mean just the horn of that animal. And then that horn was blown to indicate the jubilee. So originally what meant a ram then comes to mean letting the slaves go free. Okay. Moshe, somebody read it, 14. Moses came down from the mountain to the people and warned the people to stay pure, and they washed their clothes. And he said to the people, be ready on the, for the third day, the men among you shall not go near a woman. Go on. On the third day, as morning dawned, there was thunder and lightning and a dense cloud upon the mountain, and a very loud blast of the horn, and all the people who were in the camp trembled. Moses led the people out of the camp toward God, and they took their places at the foot of the mountain. All right, so Moshe comes down and says, you have to stay pure, right? So they launder their clothes, they do all those things, and speaking to the men, you shall not go near a woman. Right, so that they shall not, can, they shall not go into a state of ritual impurity from having uh, ejaculation. So, um, don't don't have intercourse. All right, this is a different state. You're supposed to be in a different state. On the third day, as morning dawned, there was thunder and lightning and a dense cloud upon the mountain, a very loud blast of the shofar, and all the people who were in the camp appropriately. Trembled. So all of the atmospheric disturbances you could imagine, right? And in a place like Sinai, you get thunder and lightning, and it's like, it's not like Georgia. Thunder and lightning in Georgia is like thunder and lightning. Yeah, we, you know, love it. And, but it's a normative thing. Thunder and lightning in the Sinai in the mountains would have been like, right? Freaky. Um, and so all of these atmospheric disturbances, a very dense cloud, and a seriously loud Shofar blast, the people are appropriately, this is shock and awe. This is the original shock and awe. They had the experience that was designed to have happen of shock and awe. 
that, that we designed for over there was, right, you, you do something that really makes them, takes them immediately out of their normative state and puts them in a state of absolute awe and, and terror on some level. So Moshe leads the people out of the camp towards the mountain, right? So they got to have mixed feelings about that. Um, and they took their places at the foot of the mountain. And the, the, the rabbis, I mean, it's just, it's just fabulous. Our, ugh, the Hebrew, it's so glorious. Because they're betachtit hahar. Tachat hahar. They're at the bottom of the mountain, right? So your English says, at the foot of the mountain. But tachat, what's this? Your tuchus. It's your tachat. Because where is it in relation to you? It's your bottom. Where is it in relation to you? Under. You. Because tachat in Hebrew means under. So the rabbis say the people are literally tachat, they're under the mountain. Now, of course, it means they're at the bottom of the mountain. But they use this as a wonderful invitation to a midrash that says God lifted Mount Sinai, put it over the people, and said, You have a choice. Would you like to enter a special covenant with me or not? And the people are tachat hahar. They are under the mountain and they say, sure. Whatever you say. Whatever you say. Right? Yes. Of course, count us in. So, um, so the Hebrew, you just can't get it unless you're right, reading some of this in Hebrew. It's just delicious. Ostensibly, God didn't lift the mountain on any of the other people's <laughs> Right, exactly, exactly. Yeah. Maybe God had lost all patience with humanity right. at that point. A few weeks ago, we talked about Adam and Eve um, inferring that they were probably, with all the time they had on their hands, were doing more than looking at each other. <laughs> Nothing was really said one way or the other. Right. Uh, labeling sex. But here, it's like the first time it's putting like a damper or something negative to do with having sex. So it, there are times where we are not supposed to be engaged in activities that will pull us out of a certain state. So we're in a state of otherness. So there's times where sex is forbidden, because according to Jewish tradition, because we're in a state, there's a state of otherness involved. And so you, you ref, one of the things you do is refrain. On Yom Kippur, we refrain from having sex. It doesn't mean sex is bad. You don't have sex on Yom Kippur. You're supposed to be in a state of otherness. It's a different state. And part of the making that state different and keeping it different is to not engage in certain behaviors. Well, another state would be praying, but they're not, they don't say anything. Because that's, that's rabbinic. That's different. That's different. That's much later. When I read it, it kind of bothered me because it doesn't say, like, don't have sex. It says stay away from a woman. You know, and maybe that started a lot of things that Orthodox men have about, you know, not hearing women's voices perhaps, and a lot of prohibitions about touching and shaking hands and hugging. Maybe that all stemmed from right here, fear of women. So um, I, I would actually argue the other way, which is men's fear of women is what caused this line to be here. Okay. Do, do you know, like, I, I, I don't think ever I've seen halacha point back to that. Now, are those same things that make people, make you know, men weird about women's stuff? W- would that cause this line to be written this way? Probably. You know, when, when they trace back to Nigia and stuff like that, it's about men's, I think, fear of women's sexual power to attract and draw them. It's not women that are the problem. 
Men know it's their control that's the problem. Now what they want to do is project that, as usual, onto women. But, so this line is another indicator that that's always been going on, but, but they really don't hearken back usually to this. Because I come back to Adam and Eve. In terms of... Woman. Oh, yeah, because who wrote that story, right? So, yeah. <laughs> All right, so... Where are we? So, so Sinai is in smoke, right? Because God had come down in fire. So just think of every like visual and atmospheric disturbance you can imagine, right? And there's so much smoke. It's like the, the smoke of an oven, of a kiln. In the ancient world, those, those would have been pretty smoky. Um, and the whole mountain trembled. Like, so you can just imagine it's like vibrating, right? There's so much going on. The whole ground is like... And remember, um, Israel's a place of earthquakes, most of the things destroyed in Israel were destroyed by earthquake. So, like, you, you, feel, you, can, you feel earthquakes in Israel, right? So this is not an uncommon thing for them to think about the world shaking, but it's terrifying when it does. Um, and y'all know that, living here. They have earthquake uh, alerts in Israel? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. When they have time. All right. Because uh, sometimes it happens before there's warning, you know, enough warning. All right, where are we? Nineteen. So the the blare of the shofar got louder and louder, and as Moshe spoke, God answers Moshe in thunder. Interesting. Um, God answers Bikol is what it says in the Hebrew, right? So it's a little more amorphous in the Hebrew. God answers with a voice in Hebrew. It translated here as thunder. Would yours all yours say thunder? Mm-hmm. So, Adonai comes... Oh, wait. Have we, have we read this? No. All right. Somebody read it 20. Adonai came down upon Mount Sinai on t- the top of the mountain. And Adonai called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. Adonai said to Moses, Go down, warn the people not to break through to Adonai to gaze, lest many of them perish. The priests also who come near Adonai must stay pure, lest Adonai break out against them. But Moses said to Adonai, The people cannot come up to Mount Sinai, for you warned us, saying, Set bounds about the mountain and sanctify it. So Adonai said to him, Go down and come back together with Aaron, but let not the priests or the people break through to come up to Adonai, lest God break out against them. All right, so again, we're going to get some crazy up-down stuff. Go down, come up, but he's down. How can he called up when he's already up from being down? It gets all very confusing. And again, Moses is correcting God. Hey, you forgot about this. Hey, what do you mean don't come up? You've already, I mean, you tell him to come up. You just said it's supercharged, and they're going to die. Like, what? What? He allows Aaron to come up. What? Right. Right. Correct. Correct. So there's going to be three designated places on the mountain. The top is where God is. Only Moshe can go there. Then there's a level that Moshe, Aaron, you know, and, and maybe the priest, I forget, can be at. And then there's another one where the, where the people are, right? So what does this remind us of with God's concentrated presence in the, at the top? The Mishkan. The tabernacle. You're going to have God's concentrated presence in the Holy of Holies. Then you're going to have only the high priest can go into the one place. Then only the priest can go into the next level. And then there's the outer courtyard, right, where the Levites are. Like we get the same tripartite 
division of Sinai, of course, as we will the tabernacle. Absolutely. Three. So we're going to get that same, that same division. So let's go to... So Moshe goes to tell the people, right, like, don't, don't come up here. Right? So wh- who are these priests? Yeah, it's like, how, how'd that happen? Yeah. Aren't the priests in the book of Leviticus told to be the priests? Yeah? Take Levites, make them priests, make Aaron, right? What's this? Time travel. Time travel. So, there's no early and late in Torah, is one exegetical way to get around it. Um, possibly. This was referring to the very, very, very earliest manifestation of, of priesthood in Israel, which was the firstborn. The firstborn in each family was sacred. Right? We read that last week, right? Belongs to God because of the slaying of the firstborn of Egypt, right? And, and all of the firstborn of the trees, of the fruit, of everything belongs to God, as do your firstborn, right? Remember, we have to have Pidyon Haben, the redemption of the firstborn. So possibly this is referring to a time where the firstborn were still sacralized, Huh? Right, Bikurim, the firsts, right? They're sacred. The first are off limits. They belong to God. Possibly. Here. Here. Yep. What's he going to do? Hang out with Moses. Um, so we have two traditions, Mushite and Aaronid. We have the, the Mushite clans and the Aaronid clans in early Israel. So wherever you see Moshe and Aaron, the Aaronid clans have added that text to the Mushite clans. But if they were brothers, how come two clans So we have to always remember there's lived history and mythic history. And so two clans who are in the formation of early Israel and are rivals for cultic power and control tell a story retrojecting their ancestors as having been brothers so that they can move forward together. All right. So the priest. So, we, so we're, not, we're not sure. Um, all right. So now we're going to see that God is going to speak. And what, what time are we at? 10.30. 10.30. So we're going to spend a few minutes... Um, with the Ten Commandments, and the Revelation class will deal <laughs> more with the Midrash around that because it's a, hu- a huge body of literature. All right, let's go to traditionally when this is read in the synagogue, we stand for the reading of the Ten Commandments. Originally, it was um, read every uh, every Shabbat, and people stood. Um, then the rabbis got a little concerned that the Ten Commandments were taking too big a place, that they became too important, in that it somehow meant you could ignore other parts of the Torah. And so it was making them nervous how central a place the Decalogue was playing, and so they toned down all of the ritual around the reading of the Decalogue. When did that happen? I don't know. <laughs> so some things I don't even know how I know them so uh, I wouldn't even know where to, where to look it up But um, right. so ver- chapter 20 somebody begin God spoke all these words saying I Adonai am your God who brought you 
brought you out of the land of Egypt, the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods besides me. You shall not make for yourself a sculptured image or any likeness of what is in the heavens above or on the earth below or in the waters under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, your God, Adonai, am an impassioned God, visiting the guilt of the parents upon the children, upon the third and upon the fourth generations of those who reject me, but showing kindness to the thousandth generation of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not swear falsely by the name of your God, Adonai, for Adonai will not clear one who swears falsely by God's name. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of your God Adonai. You shall not do any work, you, your son or daughter, your male or female slave, or your cattle, or the stranger who is within your settlements. For in six days Adonai made heaven and earth and sea and all that is in them and then rested on the seventh day. Therefore, Adonai blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. Honor your father and your mother that you may long endure on the land that your God Adonai is assigning to you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, nor male, nor female slave, nor ox, nor ass, nor anything that is your neighbor's. All the people witnessed the thunder and lightning, the blare of the horn and the mountain smoking. And when the people saw it, they fell back and stood at a distance. You speak to us, they said to Moses, and we will obey. But let not God speak to us, lest we die. Moses answered the people, Be not afraid, for God has come only in order to test you, and in order that the fear of God may be ever with you, so that you do not go astray. So the people remained at a distance, while Moses approached the thick cloud where God was. Right. So, we have this rendering of the Aseret Hadibrut, the 10 statements, they actually can result in 13 commandments. These are not called the 10 commandments in Hebrew, right? These are called the 10 speakings, the 10 utterances. There's not 10 commandments necessarily here, so that gets fetched, but you can make 13 commandments out of this. So, um, so lots of creative work goes into making 10 commandments out of this text and out of the text in Deuteronomy. Um, it's never called in Hebrew the Ten Commandments. Mitzvah is something else. Mitzvah is what you do or don't do. This is not called that. These are not called mitzvot. These are called dibrot, say, speakings, sayings. Because God speaks, and already, Anochi Adonai, the rabbis understand to be like, you know, a powerful powerful statement by God. It's not a commandment, exactly. It's not a mitzvah, but it's still a serious part of the ten utterances. It begins with anochi. I am yod vafe elohecha 
your God, Asher Mitzrayim who took you out of Egypt from the house of slavery. In any um, suzerain vassal treaty, it begins with I am Queen Amy, who rescued you from that horrible famine, and that is why I have the the authority to call you in, I conquered you on that day, and so I, I spared your little ones, right? And so I spared your lives, so you owe me loyalty. That is how the treaties open. So God, here's the radical new Israelite innovation on that idea, that it's not a king making this covenant with a conquered people, it is the king of kings, right? The, an invisible God making a covenant with a people it rescued. Not conquered, but rescued. That is a crazy, crazy radical new idea in the ancient world. And if you even got anything close to something like that in the ancient Near East, it would only have been with the clergy, it would have been with the priests. They had a revelation. In the ancient Near East, the priests did not tell the people what they did. It was secret what they did. It wasn't shared with the people. The people didn't come into the sanctuaries of the ancient Near East. They brought their offerings and the priests took them in. The people didn't read. The people writing those texts about what we do and all the rituals that we do and da, 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 were the priests. This is a radical new idea in the world. That the covenant is made between the deity and the entire people. Women included. Children included. In a society that easily denigrated often women and children. Everybody was part of the theophany. Everybody witnessed the theophany, the appearance of the God, and everybody heard the words and understood what the terms were to live into right relationship with that deity. That is unheard of. And it changed the world. This changed the world. And did they begin reading too? And this is part of the reason it's radical is Everybody needed to access in order to, if, if all of us are supposed to live into the covenant, all of us have to access what that means. So they were all encouraged to study the law. Unheard of in the ancient world. It is a radical new innovation in how to think about a people's relationship to the divine and then to an under, to the accessibility, the democratization of the covenant. Of the priests used to do it on behalf of the peoples. Now the entire people is charged with understanding the terms. You have to be educated to understand the terms. If I know the terms and you don't, and you bring me stuff so that you can make sure I'm going to take care of you in relationship to the deity. There is a serious, serious power structure, isn't it? But if you know the terms, what does that enable you to do with me? Debate. Hmm? Debate. Debate. Are you sure? Keep each other honest. 
Are you sure, High Priestess Amy, that you're supposed to take that to the left? As I recall, Leviticus says, take it to the right. right? So it, 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 you can challenge the priesthood and their efficacy and their fitness to be priests if you know the terms. In the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, it shows Abraham challenges God. Yeah. And argues with God. Yeah. Holds God to test. Yeah. And if you could do that, certainly the priests. Right. Certainly it's a people who gets it that, you know, nobody has exclusive anything. Yeah. Was, uh, what did the rabbis say about whether the order of the utterances, the amount of words in them, you know, keeping the Sabbath, kind of went on and on about it, whereas, you know, shall not murder... One sentence and moving on. Was there, does it, was there equal weight to them because they're all said by Adonai? So tr- the tradition would say, yes, they have equal weight. Because, because, and it says, we as human beings can never know the weight of any law of Torah. There's, that's why only certain ones have the consequence of death. Most mitzvot do not have a consequence associated with them. Why? So that we shouldn't start to figure out which one's more important than another. So the rabbis have always said... Only God knows which ones are more important than another, and that's why they started to back off when the Decalogue got too important, right? So even these shouldn't be held above. You see your neighbor's ox falling over. You're supposed to pick it up. That's as important, say the rabbis, as these. Right? We don't get to decide. They are all from God. They are all important. You don't get to pick. Um, now, having said that, of course, there's a lot of discussion about the wording and right, <laughs> exactly. Gam All right. So um, another thing I love about this is that um, it says that all the people, like each person, saw and heard, and the rabbis have a. Be- there's a beautiful mystical teaching that says, and had one of the people been missing, revelation would have been incomplete that it took every single person's different apprehension of God for a complete revelation. That every one of them was necessary because each of them saw and heard it differently. And that that is how revelation is full and complete is that all of our different perspectives are needed to even begin to understand the fullness of revelation. So at this point, the priest lost the Yes. Yes. Correct. Don't the rabbis go farther and say that the revelation continues ah, today? Ah. Of course. Of course. So this day is used instead of on that day. Right? On this day, God gives the Torah, says Torah, um, meaning every day. That the voice is always going out from Sinai. And the question always is, are we listening? Rabbi, I missed something along here. Um, <laughs> I was able to follow pretty well, but then the word revelation, where, where did that suddenly come in? What, what is being revealed here? What? These laws and how to live into right relationship with God is what's being revealed to the people. Okay. They weren't told not to murder before. They weren't told, if you want to be in right relationship to me, don't kill each other. 
They only know what the Egyptians did, right? They, they don't know. They don't know any of this, according to our story. They don't know any of this yet. They're being told, you are now going to have a covenanted relationship with me. And that means if you agree, <laughs> mountain over the head, if you agree, then here's what it's going to mean for you forever. And your descendants, this is what it's going to mean. This is how you behave to be my special people, a nation of priests. Yeah. Well, I understand covenant. I understand contract. But why the word revelation? It's an English word. It's not used in Hebrew. What is used? It's not used in Hebrew. It's, it's ma'amad har sinai. Matan Torah. The giving of teaching. The giving of Torah. Matan Torah. It's, revelation is an English word that, you know, it's about this is what was revealed to the people, but it's, it's not even really a Hebrew a concept. It has a lot of Christian connotations because yeah. English is a Christian language. So that word is just, I mean, I think it's what it means is there, something's being revealed to them that they didn't know before. It's a divine revelation, um, but it, it's not how we talk about it Jewishly. It's matan Torah. It's the giving of Torah. All right. Sinai. <laughs> A code. I'm serious. Like you know, the rabbis was like, Sinai. Right. It happened to they they learned it at Sinai. How do we know that a microwave oven blah blah blah? See? All of it came down at Sinai, and then it took generations for that, you know, knowledge to, to come out. But both the written and the oral Torah were given Sinai. Learned I also Me Sinai. Hmm? I, I thank you. I mm-hmm. just this word revelation just yeah. didn't mean anything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. All right, so the preamble, here's why I get to call you into this arrangement, because I took you out of slavery. You shall have no other Elohim acherim alpanai, no other gods in my face, right? And so that means also you won't make a pesel. You won't make a sculptured image or any likeness of what is in the heavens above or the earth below, la, 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 and you will not bow down and serve them, for I am Elkanah. What does your translation say? I am a what kind of God? Impassioned God. Love that. Other translations will say I am a jealous God because kinah is the emotion that one is entitled to when one has an exclusive relationship with someone else and that person steps out of that exclusive relationship. I am entitled to kin'ah. Yes? So I have an exclusive relationship with you. You betray that. You step out of that. I'm entitled to kin'ah. So God says, I will experience kin'ah if you step out of this special relationship and go betray me, right? If you're unfaithful to me by going and doing that intimate thing called worship, right, of somebody else, something else. And I want to say with something else um, because I think the whole temptation to idolatry is not gone. I have this discussion with the kids, right, who get these partiot and we're talking about the Ten Commandments and I say to them, well, why can't we make a sculptured image? Why not? Why can't we make a statue of God? What's wrong with that? So one kid answered me recently, said, well, because I can't say if I make an image of God that that's the only way to image God. What if your image of God is something else? Then what I've said is, here's what God looks like, then I've left you out. Because you may imagine God looks like something different. 
future reference. Yes. <laughs> Beautiful, right? Why, why are we not allowed to make an image? Right? Ooh, it's another one. Oh, this is good. That's what I'm going to publish. <laughs> Um, so, like, there's a book there. I know there's someday there's a book there. So um, it's very reconstructionist. It is very reconstructionist, right? That that we edit a Ki Midrash collection. So um, so I love that, right? Because that's it's not that the it's not that that Pesel that image isn't an image of God. It might be, but it's one image of God. There's nothing so. I don't even think the prohibition is you're not allowed to have an image of God. That's not the point, I don't think. It's that you can't say this is the image of God. And if you start doing that, you get so narrow into which part of God. You, that's idolatry. Splitting off a part of the whole and making it the whole thing is idolatry. And what else do we put ahead of these values and ethics? Everything we put ahead of them is idolatry. So I ask the kids, what, what do you think that is today? Right? And they have no problem filling in those answers. Celebrities, football stars, money, luxury, power, wealth, technology, entertainment. Right? We put often all of that ahead of our understandings of how it is we're supposed to have a right relationship with God and with each other. So half of these commandments have to do with God. Half of them have to do with each other. How we treat each other, what we're supposed to do and not do as regards each other. That means how we behave towards one another directly impacts our relationship with God. New, radical, amazing idea. There's been ethics and values in other cultures. I'm not arguing there wasn't. To make that the terms of right relationship with God is that I'm not allowed to treat you badly? That's revolutionary, right? Reconstructionism at its finest, right? Reconstructing whatever's around in, in radically important um, new ways. All right, so, Rabbi, sir. Um, visiting the sins of the parents of both yeah. children. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's worthy of conversation. Um, what I will say in short about it is that there was an understanding of collectivity, Right, that we were a collective. We were, we are communal, and we are therefore we bring on consequences not only for ourselves but for generations after. And there was an understanding that that could go on endlessly. And so this was actually a shortening of that. So I know it sounds horrible because to us that's horrible, but in a context where that was understood to be the case, it could be like forever and ever. And this comes to say it won't be forever and ever, right? That there is a collectivity of when we behave badly. There is. If we don't turn, if we don't turn the ship about climate change, it will go to the fourth and fifth generation that our children will suffer. Let's be clear. What we do as a collective has implications generations down the line. And if you love me, though, it will be the thousandth generation, right? You know, behaving rightly is so much more impactful and powerful than, right? So it was meant to be a shortening of the bad and a lengthening um, of the good. All right, I want to share with you a few words of uh, Rabbi Lerner. 
because I think sometimes, and Burke Kleinman always keeps me honest about this, sometimes in placing things in its context, in arguing with the literal translation, in arguing against orthodoxy, right, we can push it to a place where it feels like we don't take, or I don't take it seriously in terms of this being Torah being, our stories being um, holy, sacred, binding. And Rabbi Lerner does a really good job of explicating for me like where I am in all of this. Because you hear me say a lot of times there's no evidence for you know this, there's no evidence for that, it probably never happened. But here, here's what he says. Go to something happened, right? He opens his whole discussion of Revelation with something happened happened. 100%. All of us who engage with this can say something happened. 100%. My life is governed by the fact that I know something happened. Now, drop down we don't know, is it this, yet what it records, we're about four or five sentences down, two, two or three words in, yet what it records, meaning Torah, buried in the midst of a people trying to recount its own development, is an e- is event monumental and transparently true, that at some point in our history as a people, we got it. We together received and accepted a message that we have a special obligation to live in accord with a transcendent view of the world. This getting it was not simply the enlightenment of a single soul or a small group of special enlightened gurus, philosophers, artists, wise men or women, spiritual seers, or mystics. The remarkable claim of Torah is that an entire people got it at the same time and in a sense all stood at Sinai together. And as the Midrash wisely adds, not only those living at that historical moment, but also all future generations were at Sinai so that all of us heard the message together and all of us can remember how we heard it. Go to the next page, the, the next column to your right. The, the paragraph that begins the very way, yes? The very way that this story has been told from generation to generation is good evidence that something happened. And that something happened to an entire people, not just to a few people. But there's another way to look at the story. That the something that happened was the telling itself. The very fact that this kind of story has been told, has taken root, and has held the moral and spiritual imagination of a people for 2,400 years is itself the story of a revelation. The ability of a people to grasp, hold, imaginatively transform, and yet remain loyal to a story of liberation may be the very thing that happened. I mean, I get chill bumps. It's like, this this to me is Sinai calling now. Yes, yes. The telling. Magid. It is our telling that is the very thing itself. So drop down at the bottom of the page. If some variant of this account were true, meaning of, of uh, that this is how it happened and it got written by this person and by that person and those things were, were 
hobbled together and it happened over time. If some variant of this account were true, would it undermine our claim that something happened? Not at all. Not only would we still maintain that the Moses group got it and that event was Sinai, but also we would say that the other tribes who accepted the telling of Moses' story got it too. This process might have taken place over the course of 500 or 800 years, but eventually a very large number of people got it. Go to the next side, to the paragraph that starts, something happened. Something happened, and it shook the Jewish people very deeply. It turned us into a group that would play a vanguard role for much of subsequent history. Out of the experience of Exodus and Sinai, would emerge a small, we're on page 79, would emerge a small group of people whose descendants would take these insights and spin off other religious traditions, including Christianity and Islam, and later psychoanalysis, Marxism, and other liberatory traditions of the modern world. Something happened to make this group conceive of itself in such a way that it would make a contribution to the world out of proportion to its numbers, a contribution that would build upon the realization that the oppression and evil in the world could be overcome. So for our purposes, let us call whatever happened the revelation at Sinai.